The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who are standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Have you ever stained uh, a piece of clothing, perhaps a shirt, to the point where you just couldn't wear it anymore? I'm not trying to brag, but I've done that not just with a shirt, but with a whole load of laundry. Uh, I still remember walking into the basement in my college dorm, feeling like a responsible 18-year-old doing my own laundry, uh, only to find that I had uh, spotted with ink all of my whites that I had put in to the dryer. Yes, I had somehow left a pen in one of the clothes, and now all of them were ruined. It's a silly example, of course, maybe you've done something similar, but the experience of having ruined clothes or uh, perhaps even wearing ruined clothes is, depending on the situation, at best annoying and at worst humiliating. But of course, that's the key variable, depending on the situation. If you're with your brother or your buddies, it doesn't matter at all if your clothes are dirty. But if you are in the presence of someone that you really want to impress, that you really want to please, then having soiled clothes is not a good look. Whether you're trying to secure a job or a second date or you're, try, or you're finally meeting your hero, you want to look dignified or at least clean. But instead, you look disheveled, dirty. In our passage this morning, we see that very dilemma on a cosmic scale. And it's not just a lesson for others. You have looked filthy in the presence of someone great. Merry Christmas. Welcome to church. <laughs> the situation is actually far worse even than, than you may think. But it's a situation that if you have eyes to see, if we together this morning have eyes to see, is also filled with with hope. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3, yes, this is a safe place to go to the table of contents, uh, but even easier, just find Matthew 
and go two books back. The Gospel according to Matthew, two books back, takes you to the book of Zechariah. This month, we're looking at four Old Testament passages that point beyond themselves to the promised one whom we celebrate at Christmas. And of all four passages we're looking at in this Advent season, there is no question that Zechariah chapter 3 is the most obscure and therefore, I think, the most underrated. It's 500 years before the birth of Christ. The the Israelites have returned to the land after decades of judgment and exile. And yet, home is not how they left it. Home is not the same. Much of Jerusalem is still in rubble. And the parts that have been rebuilt are pathetic compared to what they once were. The divine glory that departed has not yet returned. So it's into this context, this context of frustration and fear that God sends a man named Zechariah to bring a word to his people. See, before the exile, Israel struggled to believe that God really meant what he said, that the prophets really meant what they said, that God would actually judge them. And now, after the exile, Israel struggling to believe the prophets that God will actually restore them. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. God gives Zechariah a series of visions to communicate to the people on the other side of exile to give them hope, which brings us to chapter three. Here's what I think is the main idea of Zechariah chapter three, the main idea of this passage and therefore the main idea of this message. The accusations of the evil one are no match for the advocacy of the righteous one. The accusations of the evil one are no match for the advocacy of the righteous one. The vision of chapter 3 contains three main scenes. We'll look at them each in turn. First, we'll call it accusation. That's verses 1 to 3. Second, restoration, verses 4 and 5. And third, expectation. It's verses 6 to 10. So we'll just step through the chapter scene by scene by scene. Accusation, restoration, expectation. First, accusation. Accusation. Verse 1. Zechariah says, Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand, at his right side to accuse him. Now, in order to track with this sermon, because it's an obscure passage, you're going to really have to try to focus and pay attention to the scene that's being painted. Who are the characters? Where are they standing? What's going on? So I'm going to read verse 1 again because it's introducing to us the main characters that that you have to, to know in order to understand what's about to unfold. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This is not a boring film that takes an hour for the plot to thicken. 
We are immediately in it. Verse 1, peering into God's throne room, which is functioning as a courtroom because there's a trial underway. Joshua the high priest. Okay, this is not Joshua, Moses' successor. We're, we're like 800 years after that. This is Joshua the high priest after the exile. He's standing before God, which you'd expect, right? He's the high priest of the people of God. He's standing before God. That's not surprising. He's standing before God, but notice he's not alone. Satan is also there. Satan is staring at him, taunting at him, taunting him, accusing him. But why here? I mean, Satan doesn't just make cameo appearances like this in God's courtroom in every book of the Bible. So why here? Why now is this happening? What's significant about this moment in Zechariah, this moment that makes the devil want to interrupt it? Well, here's why. It's as if the devil is catching God in the act of making good on his promises. In other words, the very thing that Satan hates most, he is catching God being faithful to his word. He is catching God in the act of making good on his promises, returning the exiles back to Jerusalem, back to rebuilding the temple, restoring the high priest's role of representing the people before God. See, before the exile, for seven, or, or during the exile, for seven long decades, decades in Babylon, none of this was happening. There, there, there was no high priest standing before God. There, there was no temple. There was no rebuilt city. It was as if while Israel was languishing in exile in Babylon, it was as if God had finally had enough, had finally come to the end of it all, had said, never mind to his promises and walked away from his people once and for all. But through the prophet Zechariah. Right now, God is looking his rebellious sons and daughters in the eye, and he's saying to them, I haven't abandoned you. It, it, it may feel like it, it may seem like it, but if you will just humble yourselves and stay loyal to me, then your future is actually not bleak, it's bright. And the devil has shown up because he hates every bit of this. And so he slithers into the courtroom to register an objection. He's standing beside Joshua, the high priest, in the position of prosecutor, which is what the name Satan literally means. And what is this prosecutor's case? Well, it's not complicated. The high priest, we read in verse 3, is dressed in filthy clothes. Filthy clothes, which means he's a fitting stand-in for the people. The Hebrew word here for filthy is not a tame word. It shows up only three other times in the Old Testament in reference to menstrual blood, human excrement, and vomit. Satan's like... <laughs> Some high priest you are, Joshua. You, you are a joke. You had the audacity to come in here looking like that. And then he turns to God, as it were, and says, and God, if, if you're really holy as you love to claim, then you and I both know 
that you have to expel this. You have to expel this filthy intruder from this sparkling room. See, we look at this scene and we think two of the three characters makes sense in the throne room of God. We assume two of the three characters fit, right? Joshua the high priest, that makes sense. The Lord Almighty, that makes sense. Satan is the unwelcome intruder. But notice, Satan is not acting like an unwelcome intruder. He's not hiding in the shadows, just waiting for his moment, waiting to tiptoe out and and lob an accusation at just the right time. No, he's standing there, firm-footed, chest out. He is confident. His whole case is, Joshua, don't look at me. You're the one who doesn't fit. You're the one who's an embarrassment. You're the one who's unwelcome here. Just look at yourself, Joshua. You're pathetic. Well, how does the accused, how does Joshua reply? He doesn't. Doesn't even have a chance to speak because someone else takes charge of the conversation. Verse 2, the the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Look how many times the word Yahweh shows up in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? In other words, stand down, Satan, and be quiet. You may not speak of my servant that way. I chose Israel, and you're acting like I made a mistake. I snatched them out of the fires of exile because they're precious to me, and you think you can show up in my throne room and tell me who's unwelcome? Here in verse 2, we see God's electing love and his rescuing grace. He chose Jerusalem. He chose the Israelites, not the reverse. As we saw last week, he set his affection on them, not because they were so good, but because he was so good. And it's the same with you and me. And here's the thing. Only that kind of love is secure. That's the kind of love you need because a love that you never earned is a love that can't be lost. If you earn it, you can lose it. But you can't lose what you never earned. And those on whom God set his electing love become the recipients of his rescuing grace. In 1709, a home in England caught fire. It was obviously a terrifying scene, large family. All the kids were able to make it out safely. At least they thought so, until they looked around and realized that the six-year-old John was missing. Panic ensues, and neighbors start to look in, and, 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 and finally, a, a nearby farmer spotted little John up in, in an upstairs window amid dancing flames. And so the neighbors rushed to the, the base of the window uh, at risk to themselves, and they, they hoisted one another up shoulder on top of shoulder on top of shoulder until the person on top was able to reach in and pull out little John at the last moment. 
Well, years later, after his conversion, John Wesley loved to describe his own life with the words of Zechariah 3, 2. A burning stick snatched from the fire. And if you are repenting and trusting in Jesus, that is exactly what you are too. You've been snatched, not not from a house fire, but from the eternal fire of God's justice that you deserve because of your rebellion, your idolatry, your sin, your boredom with the God of the universe. You deserve that eternal fire of justice, and yet he has reached you in and pulled you out in love. Now, don't lose sight of the scene in in Zechariah 3. Electing love, rescuing grace. These are not just random abstract doctrines that are kind of floating in midair because, well, it's the Bible and we need to be talking about high-minded spiritual concepts. No, electing love and rescuing grace are, in the context of the passage, direct responses to satanic attack. God is spotlighting what he does best, choosing, (laughs) snatching, because Satan is busy doing what he does best, accusing, accusing, not just 25 centuries ago with Joshua, but even this morning and this coming week in your own conscience, in your own heart. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing you've got to understand about the devil's accusations against you. Maybe you've never been told this in church, but here's the thing you need to understand about Satan's accusations. They're not technically wrong. He steps into the courtroom prepared. He steps into your conscience prepared because you are guilty before a righteous God. You are left to yourself a moral failure, a hypocrite, an imposter, a joke. This is not to say you're worthless. You are made in the image of God, which means you have infinite dignity and worth, but that actually just makes your guilt all the worse. Because you have defaced the image of God in you through idolatry and rebellion so much that you are defiled from head to toe, from the inside out. And the idea, the idea, this is Satan's whole case, the idea of you standing in the presence of God, much less worshiping. I saw you guys earlier. You were all standing as if you deserve to be in God's presence. Satan's like, excuse me, do you see them? Did you look inside their hearts this past week? What are they doing? It's not just surprising. It's not just a little laughable. It's wrong, Satan says. It's obscene. Satan looks at you, and then he looks at God. And he doesn't just say, "Uh, God, you have lowered your standard. He says, God, you have violated your standard. I mean, I used to think of the, the na- that the nature of Christ's advocacy for me, right? His intercession for me at the right hand of God the Father basically consisted of him going to God over and over and convincing him yet again to give me another chance. 
Yes, Matt, Matt blew it again. Yeah, yes, he, he deserves damnation, but, but please, Father, just, just give him one more day. And therefore, I mean, you may not think of it quite like that. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit for the sake of effect, but that's how many of us think. Some version of that that Jesus kind of has to stand there and keep God happy with us. And that he's just kind of hoping to, to, to buy you more time to remain in God's good graces. But here's the thing. When that is your mentality or any version of that, your security will only be as strong as your confidence that that arrangement can hold. Because at what point is the father going to look back and say, I've heard enough about that guy. <laughs> no more days, no more mercy, no more leniency. It's over. But beloved, the foundation of our security is not that flimsy. In fact, here's another thing you probably weren't expecting to hear in church today. The foundation of your security isn't even just a matter of mercy. It's not just a matter of mercy. What, what do I mean? Well, your salvation is not hanging on this spider thread of God being lenient. Your, your salvation is not hanging even on the thread of God being merciful. Your salvation is hanging on the cross. His name is Jesus. He paid it all. And therefore, when you come to him and confess your sin, the Bible says not that he is faithful and merciful, but that he is faithful and just. You are so secure that it would be wrong for God to condemn you if you are hidden in his perfect son. Faithful and just to forgive your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. Yes, Satan brings true charges against you. Good for him. But Christian, when God snatched you from the fire, he did it with a clear view of everything you are and would ever be. He did it with a clear view of your past filth, your present filth, and your future filth. He knew you'd fail him. He knew you'd continue to fail him, but he wanted you anyway, and that has never changed. But the devil has the gift of discouragement. And he loves to slither into our conscience and whisper accusations if he must all day long to get us feeling. He'll do anything he can to get you feeling down about your sin. But God did not give you a new heart for it to just be perpetually torn up in pieces with discouragement. So instead of listening to the accuser, set your eyes afresh this morning on the electing love that God placed on you from before the foundation of the world. Then shift your gaze to the manger where that love became enfleshed as a human just like you except without sin. But if you want to see where his love shines brightest, start staring at the cross. Spend some time this week pressing into your heart words like we sometimes sing. Words like, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Not if, when. This is going to happen today or tomorrow or the next day. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, 
my sinful soul is counted free. Why? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you don't understand what I just said, you don't yet understand Christianity. You really shouldn't go into the parking lot and get in your car and drive away from here today until you understand what I just said. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. But God doesn't stop with silencing the accusations. I mean, if he stopped there, he would be infinitely good and we would be beholden to come and worship him. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He silences the accusations and then he reclothes and restores the accused. Number two, restoration. Restoration. Look at verse four. This is scene number two. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. The scene, it's, it's actually there's a, a bit of a humorous moment, I think, here in verse five. It's like what's going on is so startling and exciting that even Zechariah, the narrator, chimes in. Verse five, then I said, put a clean turban on his head. In other words, don't stop with, this is great, I love this. Don't stop with the priestly robes. Also give him the priestly mantle so he'll be fully decked out from head to foot. So, They put a clean turban on Joshua's head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Again, Joshua's repulsive rags are a physical picture of the people's spiritual condition. But notice, this is so important, how God responds, how he responds to Joshua's defilement. It's the exact same way he responded to the accusation in verse two. Remember there, Satan didn't respond to Satan. uh, I'm sorry, God didn't respond to Satan when Satan's like, hey, uh, Joshua doesn't deserve to be here. He's filthy. God didn't say, uh, he didn't minimize Joshua's filth. He he didn't say, "Uh, I I, I can see why there's been a a misunderstanding, but let me explain. No, he, he told Satan to stand down. He said, I selected and snatched those people out of the fire. How dare you accuse them? And likewise, here in verse four, it's not, once again, uh, I, I can see how it looks, but just hear me out. His clothes are a mess, uh, but, but, but it's not as bad as it looks. No, he doesn't for a second deny the dirt. He just removes it and replaces those tattered rags with radiant robes. And the most important word I just said was the pronoun he He does this. He is the acting agent. It's not, God doesn't say, look, Joshua, wow, you've looked better before. Uh, I can see you're really in a bind. I don't know how you got this filthy, but here's the deal. I'm merciful. I'm loving. So I'm going to give you the chance to leave my throne room and go try to find a better outfit and feel free to come back again. No, it's I have removed your sin. I will clothe you with pure garments. All you need to do, Joshua, here's what Joshua needs to do. All you need to do is stand there. 
Stop trying to cooperate with me. Stop trying to participate in what I'm doing. All you need to do is stand there and receive this free gift. Of course, in the immediate context of this passage, the new clothes symbolize the priesthood regaining its lost dignity. That's not all, is it? Is, is it? I mean, this too is an enacted parable of our own salvation. Specifically, our justification. Big word, important word. Justification. Our change of status before God, whereby we who believe are pronounced righteous in the right before him. When I teach uh, our statement of faith in our membership class, I often will say when we read the, the paragraph on justification that the most important word in the whole paragraph is the word event because justification is not a process. It's an event. It's a one-time acquittal. It's a one-time judicial reckoning in the throne room of heaven, the courtroom of heaven, that a sinner can stand in the right before God. But it's also a picture here of imputation, another big and important word, imputation. God imputing or crediting our sin to Christ and imputing or crediting Christ's righteousness to us. You want to know what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross is that Christ was treated as if he had lived your filthy life so that you through faith could be treated as if you have lived his faultless life. This is why Andy called us to worship at the beginning of the service with the words of Isaiah 61.10. It's a good verse to memorize in the new year. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And here's the reason. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. I know some of you this morning feel too messed up, too not put together, too filthy for God to really keep loving you, accepting you, forgiving you. Maybe you're fine coming to church because you can keep up the act, but you know deep in your conscience that God sees what you're really like, what you really thought and said and did even just this past week, maybe even this morning. Well, Joshua was in the same situation. His clothes were repugnant in the sight of God, and yet God gave him new ones. And the same is true for every Christian in this room. Friend, you've never thought something or said something or done something so grotesque as to vacate the promise of new clothes from Jesus, the robes of his righteousness. If you would only come to him in faith today, he will gladly give you that new outfit he will gladly give you the robes of his righteousness, the robes that he deserved, the robes that he won. He will place them on you if you'll just stand there and receive them. Here's how one 17th century pastor, and I say 17th century so that it's a short quote, but the language is a bit archaic. Here's how he summarized this dramatic scene. I love this. Christ loathed, he hated, Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments. I'm trying to work on this. It's one of my weaknesses as a preacher. 
I interrupt my own quotes to explain them just because I, I love the quote so much. But I am going to stop myself here and just say this. Because I realize I can preach from this. Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments. It occurs to me that so much that passes for Christianity today talks about the mercy and the love and the grace of God in a way that makes it sound as if your sin doesn't even really matter. Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments. He loathes your sin. But the quote continues, Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments, yet did not put him away, but put them away. Thus God, by his grace, does with those whom he chooses. He parts them and their sins and so prevents their sins parting them and their God. But the applications here aren't just for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. I mean, if all of this is true, then we ought to be the kind of place here at River City Baptist Church where we behave as if we all have the status as members of the church, the status of justified sinners, and both words have to stay together. Bad things happen when one word breaks off from the other. If we emphasize sinner at the expense of justified, then we're going to be fixated more on our filth than on our Savior. But if we emphasize justified at the expense of sinner, then we aren't going to have patience and sympathy for those who are struggling. We'll act shocked by the presence of indwelling sin that, if we're honest, plagues every one of us, beginning with the person staring at us in the mirror. Oh, RCBC, let's be the kind of church where we are free to confess our sin because we are leaning into our status before God as justified sinners. In our church covenant, we, we promise to come out of the shadows together, don't we? Not to hide in the shadows, to come out of the shadows into the safety of the light. We, we say that we will pursue transparency with each other, resisting the temptation to hide our struggles and sins, that we might experience the grace of God in the care of of his saints. And if we fail to view one another as justified sinners, then we won't be in a position to live out our church covenant. We won't be in a position to, as the covenant goes on to say, admonish gently or receive correction humbly. I mean, just think about it. If you view the people around you primarily as sinners with their justified status kind of buried in the fine print, then you are not going to be in a position to admonish gently. You're going to want to admonish harshly from a balcony of superiority. But likewise, if you view yourself, say, as, as justified, not really a sinner. Yes, I, I make mistakes, but I'm a good Christian. Well, then you're not going to be in a position to receive correction humbly. We need to collectively lean as a church into both truths, justified sinners. Well, the accuser has been silenced. Joshua has been reclothed and restored, but God is still not done. Scene three, expectation, expectation. Verse six, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. Joshua. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Don't miss the order of events here. Joshua is reclothed and cleansed, verses 4 and 5, before he is commanded, verses 6 and 7. This is the good news of Christianity which is unique to Christianity. You don't have to perform for God in order to be accepted by God. Verses six and seven don't come before verses four and five. They come after. He accepts you and cleanses you because of Christ's performance, at which point you're then liberated to walk in his ways because you want to bring pleasure to the one who has redeemed you. Here's another thing. What office does Joshua hold in Israel? I've said it many times. What office? Priest. Priest. What in verse 7 does God promise him if he obeys? That he will govern. It's the word for rule. That, that doesn't, we don't bat an eye at that. But for the original hearers of this, this would have been a record scratch moment. Okay? This is a category confusion. In the Old Testament, priests served, but only kings ruled. Priests did not govern. Priests did not rule. Priests served, but kings ruled. The camera lens takes on even clearer focus in chapter 6. Keep your finger in chapter 3. Look with me at Zechariah 6, verse 11. Take the silver and gold. This is from the returning exiles. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. A crown. What does a crown make you think of? King. Make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest. Again, you didn't put crowns on priests. Friends, in Zechariah 3 and 6, we are seeing a flicker in the Old Testament of what will light up the pages of the new, the reunion of priesthood and kingship in one man. But this idea of a priest-king is not the only flicker of the future. Look back in chapter 3 at verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. Both are official titles laden with meaning. It's, it's, it's in the scrolls of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, my servant is the way God describes the Messiah who will come and suffer and die in the place of his people. And Isaiah 11, the branch is his designation for the same Messiah who will shoot up from David's line and inherit the throne forever. Remember verse 2? What was the image way back in verse 2? John Wesley, we were a burning twig. Jesus is a branch sprouting with life from the ground. The historical events of Joshua's day are, verse 8 says, symbolic. Symbolic for a greater day of fulfillment. God, God is recertifying his promise. <laughs> I, I'm not saying never mind to my promises. I'm still planning to bring a greater priest, a true and better Joshua, who will come as a suffering servant and rise to rule the world. 
And what is the Lord's promise that God is saying? Hey, it's still in play. It's still in play. Look forward, hope, trust me. What is that promised etched in stone? Look at the end of verse nine. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The coming of the servant, the branch, will coincide with the ejection of sin. And 500 years later, that day finally came. As Jesus hung on the cross, the, the earth shook, the, the sun was blotted out. You realize in the Christmas story, we experience brightness at midnight with the angels lighting up the night sky. At Christmas, you get brightness at midnight. On Good Friday, you get darkness at noon. The graves were opened as he hung on the cross. The sun was blotted out and the covering of sin was removed from those who bore its guilt. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Friend, this is why the dying words of Jesus Christ were not, it is almost finished. As if we're left to complete the task. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath so there would not be a single drop left for you if you're hidden by faith. In him. And this climactic removal of sin has spillover effects in the life of God's people. Verse 10 In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Those of you who have seen the play Hamilton may recognize this phrase. Uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda uh, knew that George Washington loved to use this phrase to describe the peace of independence and freedom from military oppression. But it wasn't original to Washington, this whole everyone under their own vine and fig tree. It wasn't original to Washington, and it's not original to America. It's another image that flickers throughout the Old Testament to describe the security and blessedness of life under the Messiah's reign. But it's not just a feel-good phrase. There's an action involved. Each of you will, what's the verb there in verse 10? Invite. Invite your neighbor to the Christmas Eve service. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, invite your neighbor into this kingdom life. No, we are not ancient Israel rebuilding a temple in Jerusalem, but we are the church, the temple of Jesus Christ, called to invite others into the peace of forgiven sin and the security of the king's reign. Christian, who are you inviting. We saw last week the really good and encouraging news that it, it, it's not your job to save them. It's your not, jo not your job to convince them. It's your, not your job to change them. It's just your job, what's the verb? To invite them. As Martin Luther said, we're, we're just like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're just directing people to where these ancient prophecies and their own deepest longings find ultimate fulfillment, where all the flickers finally point. In Zechariah 3, we're still five long centuries away from the first Christmas in Bethlehem. And yet the story is a diamond radiating gospel grace. I hope you've seen that this morning. We, we can marvel at this diamond from so many angles. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. That's his electing love. Is not this a man a burning stick snatched from the fire? 
That's his rescuing grace. Remove his filthy garments. I'll clothe you with pure ones. That's him dressing us in the righteousness of his son. We have a priest king. We have a suffering servant. We have a mighty branch. We get to overhear the words, I will remove their sin in a single day, which is exactly what would happen on Good Friday. It's not a long chapter, and yet it can feel overwhelming to ponder and trust me to preach because there is just so much going on. It's so sprawling, and yet there is actually a laser-like practical focus. All the angles on the diamond converge in service to the believer who hears and cannot shake the whispers of accusation. Above all, what Zechariah 3 presses on our hearts is that this sovereign, rescuing, righteousness-granting, sin-removing king just happens to be your personal defense attorney and he's undefeated in court. That's why the Apostle John can write just two verses after 1 John 1, 9, which I read earlier. My dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's why Paul can reflect on our opponents, on the prosecution, human and demonic, and say, Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Believer, this means you're free to live and to smile and to have joy and to invite others to come and find rest in the defense attorney who's never lost a case. Well, near the beginning of, of the message, I say this in conclusion, I, I mentioned John Wesley. When he was converted in 1738, there was another John in England who definitely was not converted. He was busy trafficking human bodies in the transatlantic slave trade. But God reached in and he snatched John Newton out of the fire too. And you can imagine, given his wicked past, he's most famous to us for the words of amazing grace, you can imagine that given Newton's wicked past, that he often heard the whispers of accusation. And he did. And do you know what he how he, how he coped with that? He fought back. He fought back against the devil's lies by putting pen to paper and writing prayers like this. Perhaps you can relate. Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within. I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place. That Sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Or as another old hymnist put it, even more simply, well may the accuser roar. And again, this is something that will happen to you 
today and tomorrow and this week because this is the way Satan rules. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Beloved, the sins you cannot forget, whether last night or 40 years ago, the sins you cannot forget, God does not remember. That's how defended and covered and secure you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are our defense attorney and that your case for us is airtight, not because we're easy to defend, but because you've already paid for the crimes. Help us this week to, to live and to laugh and to rejoice as if this is true because it is. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.